Thank you, Neil. It is indeed a privilege to be able to speak to you once again uh, this morning, and especially upon the theme that I'm going to be addressing, which is so near and dear to my own heart. Now, we are not bound, as it were, to the church calendar, but today is Palm Sunday, and I do believe that the theme of our sermon is consistent with that day. On the church calendar today begins Holy Week, and I'd like for us to look at a number of passages this morning as we consider uh, the subject of the centrality of the cross in the religion of the Bible. And as I say, we're going to reference a number of passages and look at a number of others, at least in a cursory way. But I would like to read this morning the text where I intend to conclude. So hear the word of God as I read 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever. Let us pray. O Holy Father, we bow before you this morning, knowing the weakness and the limitations of our own finite minds. And we feel as well, O Lord, with shame the influence of sin upon our minds and our hearts. And we therefore cry out to you together out of a felt consciousness of our creatureliness and our sinfulness. O God, help us to understand your word by that help which comes from above, even the gift of illuminating grace that your Holy Spirit is pleased to impart. And, O Lord, help us to proceed in this hour, not as though we're simply interacting with the thoughts and the musings of a preacher, but may we be conscious of having direct dealings with you in this, the ministry of your word. Grant us, we pray, that our hearts would be ravished afresh with a sight of our Savior in all the plentitude and glory of his saving grace and power, that we may find our hearts running out to you as never before in faith, love, and obedience, and that our wills and our affections may be wrapped up in your Son, in whose blessed name we pray, to your glory and to the good of our souls. Amen. If someone were to pick up the New Testament for the very first time and begins to read with any degree of understanding or sensitivity as to its contents, that person would inevitably be struck by a dominant feature which pervades and permeates the first four books 
of the New Testament. Those books which we commonly refer to as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And upon entering into the first four books of the New Testament, the one thing that would strike the attentive reader is that approximately one-fourth of the actual content of the gospel records is devoted to those events which transpired in the last week of our Lord's earthly ministry. Whole segments composed of years of our Lord's life spent here on earth or passed over without so much as a word about them. Other segments of our Lord's life comprising years are summarized by only a few brief words such as the statement which we find in Luke chapter 2 and verse 52 where we read that Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And that's all we know about our Lord's life from age 12 to age 30. Now by the omission of these segments of our Lord's life, I think that God is saying something to us. It's as though he passes over many of these events of our Lord's life, shrouding them in silence or giving us merely a condensed glimpse in a few brief words. But as we come down to those events which make up the last week of our Lord's life here on earth, the Holy Spirit takes the zoom lens, as it were, and focuses in, in detailed description, upon those events, that path which led our Lord to the cross, from the cross to the tomb, and out of that tomb, until he ascends back to the right hand of his Father, exalted in glory. And even then, as we continue to read beyond the Gospels, we find that the focus of God on the cross of Christ does not cease. For as one continues to turn the pages of the New Testament, one finds that the meaning and the significance of that bloodletting death is explained and delineated in the subsequent preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts as well as in the epistles of the New Testament. And as we examine their initial sermons or those summaries of their initial sermons, we see over and over again that the very heart and soul of their preaching centers upon those great truths that cluster around what God was doing in the death of his son upon the cross. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And they took no shortcuts to prove from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus of Nazareth, was none other than who he claimed to be the very Christ of God. And they went to great pains also to prove from those same scriptures that 
this Christ had to suffer, that he must die, and that he must be raised again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that on the basis of what he accomplished in his sinless life, bloodletting, sin-bearing death, salvation from sin is freely offered to sinners. Moreover, when we move from the book of Acts to the letters of the New Testament, those documents of Scripture which we refer to as the epistles of the New Testament, there we find precisely the same emphasis all over again. For instance, when we read of Paul's description of the Christian message in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, what does he call it? He calls it the word of the cross. The word of the cross or the preaching or it's translated by some the message of the cross. It's not the preaching of a particular code of ethics or morality. It's not the practice of a certain standard by which to live the good life. No, he calls it the word of the cross, which is to those who are perishing foolishness, but which is constituted to be the very power of God to those who are being saved. Indeed, Paul could say in retrospect of his initial arrival in the city of Corinth that he determined to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Among all the other things that the Apostle Paul taught concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, central to everything, this was the pulse beat of his burden to publish abroad the crucifixion of his Lord. And then when we turn in the New Testament further to any formal statements of what constitutes the heart of the gospel, such as that statement which we find by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and the first four verses. There the Apostle says, and I pick up with verse 3, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. But then as we probe even further into the manuscripts of these New Testament epistles, another facet of this same theme is brought to light, and it is this. Not only is this cross-centeredness found in those passages in which the doctrinal heart of the gospel is opened up, but when we come to the most practical directives and instructions of the epistles, the cross there is likewise central to the writer's theme. For instance, when dealing with the Christian's personal high call to humility, what example do you think that the Apostle Paul sets before his readers in his epistle to the Philippians? Well, he writes 
in the fifth verse of Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And what was that mindset of our Lord? Well, he begins to tell us, and he says in verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The centrality of the cross is superimposed right there in the very midst of a practical exhortation to personal humility. Again, as the Apostle Paul approaches that nitty-gritty problem of sexual immorality existing within the church at Corinth, what does Paul do as he takes up that problem and seeks to correct those patterns of thought and behavior among the Corinthians? Well, he places the cross right there in the middle of that very sordid problem. And so when dealing with with this problem of fornication, sexual impurity, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And the redemptive price reference there is none other than the blood of Christ shed upon the cross. So in view of even a brief overview of New Testament literature, one cannot fail to see unless one is determined not to see it. But if someone reads with any measure of intelligence and understanding, that person will see what God intends for us to see, that being the centrality and paramount significance of the cross of Christ in the religion of the Bible. This being true, two obvious conclusions are warranted. And I've included these in your sermon notes at the bottom of your sermon notes because they're rather long statements, but you have them written out there so that you don't have to memorize them. And the first obvious conclusion is this. To be ignorant of the fundamental significance of the cross of Christ is to be ignorant of the very heart and soul of biblical religion. If you're sitting here this morning and for some reason you're ignorant of the New Testament centrality of the cross of Christ, then you're ignorant of the very heart and soul of biblical religion. And dear people, such ignorance with regard to that is not some secondary or peripheral issue of an inconsequential matter. No, it's guilt of ignorance with regard to that which is the primary and central issue of biblical religion. 
And such ignorance, we learn from Scripture, if left unchecked, will lead one into a Christless eternity. But then there is a second conclusion that is warranted, and I've included this in your notes as well. It is this. To be at a distance from or insensitive to the constant motivational burden of the cross is to be a stranger to the religious life of the Bible. In other words, if we, you and I, do not sense the burden of the cross to some degree in the most practical details of our lives, then we are strangers to the religious life of the Bible. For the religious life as set forth in the Bible is a life lived under the burden of Christ and his cross. It is living under, yes, the rich and glorious glow and warmth of that cross, but at times it is felt to be a stinging, sharp burden that separates Christians from worldlings. And if your life does not groan to some degree at times under a sense of that burden's weight, then you can be sure that you bear no conscious connection to the burden of the cross in the life that you lead. Has that specific burden ever alienated you from your peers on the job when, for example, they engage in filthy jokes or filthy speech made in jest? Does that particular burden share you from, uh, or prevent you from sharing in the laughter of those with whom you work side by side. Because to be identified with Christ is to be identified with a motivational burden of his cross. Jesus said, Luke 9 verse 23, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now, if these two conclusions are warranted in the light of the biblical evidence, then anything, anything that can overcome fundamental ignorance concerning the cross of Christ surely is a help in the progress of true religion. And anything that can, under the blessing of God, close the distance from or shatter any insensitivity to the motivational burden of the cross of Christ should be counted as a friend of grace in our earthly pilgrimage as Christians. Now this biblical emphasis upon the centrality and significance of the cross of Christ in the religion of the Bible is perfectly illustrated uh, and, and is demonstrated there very plainly in the first epistle of Peter. And I want us to spend the remainder of our time in First Peter this morning. 
I want us to look at three chapters in Peter. And I want us to see how the centrality of the cross is brought to the forefront in the way that Peter argues in his epistles. In chapter 1, you'll notice, of 1 Peter, there the Apostle Paul, he is addressing the perfected glory of salvation as provided by the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he speaks of that salvation in terms of what we could call its doctrinal outlook, notice how central Christ in the glory of his cross is portrayed in the pen of Peter. Verse 10, of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand. Now notice the central core of that salvation of which they prophesied. Here it is when he or he in them testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So this great gospel of salvation for sinners is a gospel which in its doctrinal outlook terminates upon this great central act of God in the death of His Son upon the cross. And then in point after point, Throughout this epistle, when Peter seeks to impress believers with their practical responsibilities and duties, he never moves away from the cross which is central and fundamental to their justification, their salvation. But he brings the cross into focus again and again. Notice further in chapter 1 here. We see in verse 15 that he gives this exhortation to holiness. And then in verse 17, he issues this call for us to live a life in the fear of God. Now those, dear people, are two very practical duties of every Christian. A call to universal holiness and a call to constancy of walking in the fear of God. Now then, notice how he buttresses those two duties and so enforces their observance. Verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And then Peter goes in to such lofty doctrines as foreordination, things purposed in the heart of God before the foundation of world. He dives into a theory of history in which all of history is interrelated to the cross, verse 20, but was manifest in these last times for you. Now we're... Did all of that doctrinal business get introduced or how or in what context? 
Well, in the context of exhorting Christians to be holy and to walk in the fear of God, but to do it all in the glorious light of the cross of Christ. In other words, Peter is simply saying this, in every step you take in the pursuit of holiness, in every conscious moment of walking in the fear of God, those duties should be driven by the motivational burden of the realities of the cross of Christ. Now look then how he does the same thing in chapter 2 of 1 Peter. He addresses himself to a very practical problem that servants or slaves faced in, that, in those days. They might have unjust masters who make unjust demands upon them and then who mete out unjust discipline and punishment. And so Peter is going to instruct these servants, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 2. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if, When you're beaten for your thoughts, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called because... Now notice, notice how he instructs these slaves who are plagued by the problem of what should I do when my master makes unjust demands upon me. Unreasonable claims are made upon me. And then unfair and unreasonable punishment is administered. What am I to do? Peter says, bring the cross into the center of that situation. Do not even begin to consider what you should or should not do with any patterns of thought that are detached from the cross of Christ. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. And this great statement, you see, of the suffering and death of Christ is brought to bear upon this very practical exhortation given to servants who simply want to know how to react when living in the presence of unjust masters. But the Apostle Peter is not content to stop here. He does the very same thing in chapter 3. And dear people, if in any way this appears to be overkill, I, I assure you that... 
My puny efforts are nothing in comparison to the rich data of the New Testament upon this central theme. In chapter 3, Peter begins to address the problem of Christians who are suffering. Not because they're going about seeking to be a thorn in the side of their society. Not because they were seeking to be an irritant in the eye of their community. They were only trying to live consistently as Christians. And Peter begins to speak to them in verse 13 of chapter 3. Please look at it with me. Peter writes and says, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Now that sounds like strange language, does it not, to fallen human nature? Peter says, Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense or an answer to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And so I trust you see the practical exhortation Here are believers. Peter's addressing them. They're simply trying to live a peaceable and godly godly life. And yet they're being persecuted for it. What are they to do? How are they to respond? Peter says in essence, draw near to the cross of Christ as you weigh that issue. 4, verse 18. 4, Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Well, dear people, as we conclude this morning, I ask you again, in what context does this profound statement on the death of Jesus Christ get introduced It is in the context of a practical exhortation. And so you see in 1 Peter alone, there is ample demonstration of the tremendous place which is attributed to the cross of Christ and the religion of the Bible. And that brings me once again to emphasize the two very obvious conclusions to which I made reference earlier. To be ignorant of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is to be ignorant of the very heart and soul of biblical religion. Or to be at a distance from or insensitive to the constant motivational burden of the cross of Christ is to be estranged from the religious life of the Bible. 
And I would exhort you as my brothers and sisters in Christ, do you sense the constant motivational burden of the cross upon your life as you live it day by day? Does it dictate your choices? Does it restrain your lips from saying things that you ought not to say? And I would say to you this morning, if you happen to sit here as someone who is a stranger to Jesus Christ, my friend, if you're ignorant of the central act of God in the death of His Son, that ignorance is not with regard to something that is of no consequence. You know, there are many things in this world in which ignorance, being ignorant of this or that, is neither fatal nor deadly. If you were to ask me, David, do you know the molecular structure of every known element in the universe? I would have to confess I am ignorant. I do not know. But such ignorance is neither deadly nor fatal. But ignorance with respect to the cross of Jesus Christ is. And if you are a stranger to grace, then we invite you to run to Christ, to come to Him. We encourage you in the language of that hymn, I think it's hymn number 472, venture on Him, venture holy, let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus, none but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Let us pray. Great God of heaven, when we begin to delve into the pages of this, your blessed book, and begin to ponder and reflect upon the person and work of your only begotten Son, we confess that we immediately find ourselves out of our debt, lost in wonder, love, and praise, unable even to begin to grasp as we ought why the just one who is altogether holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners would ever give himself for such as the likes of us. We find ourselves moved to plead, O God, that the reality of the centrality of the cross might be brought to bear upon our lives at all times and flood all of our thought patterns in every situation and relationship of our lives to the end that all of our thoughts and our words and our actions may be brought into conformity to the one who loved us and gave himself for us, even our Lord Jesus Christ, whoever lives by the power of an endless life. We ask these things in his name. Amen.